Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. It's a podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mind space. We're your hosts, David and Ryan. Today we will discuss a difficult topic, that of sex trafficking which is one of the many forms of modern-day slavery. As we delve into this topic, we hope to be sensitive to survivors of any type of abuse. We would like for our show to bring awareness about the human rights violations that are committed in our country and how the many forms of mistreatment affect our society. First of all, human trafficking is defined as a form of modern-day slavery, which involves the exploitation of persons for commercial sex or forced labor. Traffickers use force, fraud, or coercion to control the victims. Exploitation is the act of employing the greatest possible advantage as well as the utilization of another person or group for selfish purposes such as profit. Our guest today is Rachel Irby, the executive director and founder of the nonprofit organization called Unchained. The Unchained movement was established in 2011 through a collaboration of community members, survivors, and advocates who are committed to abolishing domestic sex trafficking. They just opened their first residential program for six sex trafficking survivors ages 18 to 24. Welcome to our show, Rachel. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me. Um, well, I've uh, been involved in the anti-trafficking movement for going on about eight years now. I first got involved um, back in 2008, I believe, in Phoenix, Arizona, where I was offered a position to supervise a residential program for women over the age of 18 who are leaving the life of prostitution. And it was in that um, role that we really started to look at the issue of sex trafficking and realizing that many of these women that were involved in prostitution were actually victims of sex trafficking. Um, so that's where I really started to learn and get my training as far as this issue and, and, and how it is affecting women um, and children all over the country. Um, I supervised, uh, it was a 16-bed, um, three different houses, and we had about 16 beds total, and really started doing work on the streets, working with FBI and Phoenix Vice, um, working on rescue efforts and doing street outreach. And I would also go into the jails and um, speak with women there that were um, trying to get a new start in life. And in that time, I really just started to become more of a, authority on the on the issue and started doing trainings for service providers and professionals so that they can learn how to identify victims and understand what kind of services are needed to help them um, to overcome the trauma and so on they've been through. So it was, uh, I did that for three years and then I started on the chain and um, like you said in 2011 and Really, my heart is after youth and young adults because I've seen so many women in the Dignity Program that, you know, one woman in particular was 50 years old and, you know, just leaving the life of prostitution. And when I asked her, you know, how did you get involved in this? And she actually was sex trafficked at age 14 and she was never able to break out of it. And stories like that are just, um, you know, when you think about a person getting involved in something like this at such a young age, and it becomes their entire life, I really wanted to be a part of trying to stop that cycle 
earlier in life, so that their entire life experience is not that of being abused and, and, and experiencing trauma. So um, with Unchained, I started traveling the country and speaking in multiple states, um, doing a lot on college campuses and providing trainings for service providers. And then um, we moved it from Phoenix to Tennessee in 2013, so we're going to be approaching our second year out here. And we just opened our first residential home, as you said, for victims um, ages 18 to 24. And our long-range goal, um, which is the big end dream, is to start a ranch for teens, which would be for 11 to 18 years of age. Wow, that's great. What particularly are you guys doing now beyond just... Um uh, setting up these these uh, homes for the for the women, um, are you working to? Uh, are you also working to get more uh, more awareness towards this issue within uh, Nashville and, and in the surrounding area? We consider ourselves to be a national organization, mm-hmm. um, so I still travel and speak. Um, I am definitely involved in awareness. We have um, not only had myself as far as doing. Um, trainings and so on, but we've started to train others to be able to go out in their own communities and to raise awareness, whether it be churches or, you know, businesses or workplaces, wherever it may be, um, to be able to raise awareness about the issue. And on top of that, we do have some other, like, events that are, you know, really large events that uh, that raise awareness. We have one coming up in in January, going to be at the Tennessee State Fairgrounds. Okay, so you're, you're focusing more on uh, ground-up, ground-level community organization and, and uh, awareness, it sounds yeah. like. Um, and I, and it, yeah. the reason I ask that is I, uh, sometimes these organizations will also um, try to lobby the governments or Congress or, or uh, different state governments or county governments to uh, focus on this from a, from a law enforcement standpoint. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you guys are going more of the community route. We go the community route. Um, we encourage um, people as part of our presentations to get involved in what's going on, um, you know, within things politically. I have been up there to the state capitol mm-hmm. um, and talked to a lot of legislators and so on. Um, that is not our main focus, um, and at least not mine, but there are people within our organization that they've been up there several times advocating on Unchained's behalf. I see. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm more of a more of a hands-on person, more in the education um, realm. Um, the other thing that we do, though, is uh, we do provide trainings for law enforcement. And we have one police department um, in the Middle Tennessee area that they're having me come in to train all their officers, and they're also opening it up to other officers within the state. We also have some uh County officers that will be training here very shortly as well. Oh wow, that's that's great. Um, what is your what is your reception been uh, with with uh, different government officials or or the the, uh, the different uh, police agencies? Have they been receptive to the issue or or um, it's, it's I mean, do they share your concerns or what's what's been the general reception of of your efforts? It's very mixed. Yeah, um, I think that. The problem with human trafficking, or in particular sex trafficking, is that people get confused between prostitution and sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. Um, And when it comes to law enforcement in particular, there are some individuals that believe um, that this is truly a victimless crime. Mm -hmm. Um, We hear stories, and I've heard this directly from a law enforcement officer, that they will 
in some cases, when they find a prostitute who is dead, they will label her as a um, as a NHI, which stands for No Human Involved. <laughs> um, they don't even look at these individuals as as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has been a hurdle, and we have in in each department there are champions for the cause, and then there are people that just really don't care. Um, and that's always the you know. And that's always the challenge that we face is on that education level. Um, I did have a police officer say one time, you know, why don't we look, just lower the age of consent for sex so we don't have to deal with this. Um, you know, so it seems like they make those, disturbing. yeah, they make those designations to to maybe cover up how, how prevalent of a problem it is. That's, yeah, yeah. it's kind and, of like... Like I said, then you have the other side, you know, where you do have people that you champion. I mean, I couldn't do my job without law enforcement, mm-hmm. um, especially those that, that truly understand the issue. And I mean, we had a law enforcement, we had uh, two officers from a precinct out in Phoenix that they approached us and they said, you know what, we want to understand this issue because after we ended up talking with them and really educating them about this issue, they said to us, and I quote, we have been misdiagnosing so many cases for so long. And they've been missing their opportunities to be able to help victims because they've seen them something else. Mm-hmm. So that's the challenge, you know. And, and once that light bulb goes off, then, you know, that's amazing. But it takes a while to get there. Mm-hmm. As cities get larger and larger, a lot of people seem to fall through the fall through the cracks or alienated in these large cities. They may not have family support or community support. And really, for a lot of people, especially with the women that you're dealing with, uh, the only support is, is organizations like yours um, and Unchained. And um, so, I mean, that's that's good that they have those those outlets. Um, uh, but but there, it just seems like even you know even with your organizations, there's still a lot of people who who uh, fall through the cracks and and get caught up in all kinds of crazy things, sex trafficking, um, drug trafficking, all kinds of, uh, of different shady black market um, type uh, criminal enterprises. And, yeah, I mean, and, I mean, and that's exactly what you were saying. I mean, this is a crime. Uh, this is criminal activity, which means that usually there's not crime committed unless there's somebody who's risking a benefit from it. You know, and in the sex trafficking, it's extremely lucrative. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of money to be made. And unfortunately, the penalties are not as strong as what they should be mm-hmm. um, towards really destroying another individual's life. Um, and there are programs out there um, that exist, but there's not enough. Otherwise, we wouldn't have women that are in their 40s and 50s, you know, that are just, you know, they're caught in this cycle because... So many of our programs that we have are not built to truly meet the needs that are so complex that our victims experience. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a horrible crime, and it's going to keep going until, you know, society really embraces, um, you know, that this is a true issue and, and mm-hmm. that there are, you know, people that are falling prey to these monsters. Mm-hmm. So this is something that affects all populations, uh, correct? Um, when I worked at the Houston Area Women's Center, they they asked me, um, 
you know, people who are sexually assaulted or, or have sex, uh, domestic violence, uh, they experience domestic violence, they ask me, you know, what group of people, um, you know, has that happened more? And it depended on the week. Sometimes we have affluent people, sometimes we have people in poverty, sometimes we have all, you know, white survivors or all black or Hispanic. So is it the same with sex trafficking where people in any community can be lured into or coerced to um, be prostituted by force? Yeah, you know, it, I would say that um, times uh, that we're seeing a shift um, in this where before, um, probably 15 years ago, you're going to primarily see individuals who um, have come from rough home lives, um, individuals that um, might be of color being more affected by this. Um, and, you know, you would see people, you know, it's kind of that, that mentality of if it only happens on the other side of the tracks. And I think that it, it probably was majority more like that 15 years ago, but um, something has changed in our culture that has really changed the landscape, and that is the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the Internet, we are seeing girls and young boys from all walks of life getting lured into this. Um, the internet has become the biggest track, which is a known place for prostitution, um, become the biggest track and one of the biggest vehicles for sex trafficking. So social media is a big one that's, that's bringing, you know, young girls and luring them in, um, you know, Facebook. And, and, mm-hmm. and actually just most recently I, I just spoke with a, with a, a couple who their 13 year old daughter um, was on Instagram and was being solicited by a pimp. The FBI had to get involved in that case and they tracked this guy's cell phone down um, to a port in California where they believed that she was going to be sold overseas. Um, wow. You know, this, this came from, you know, a middle class to upper middle class family, um, this young girl, over Instagram of all things. So the the landscape has changed. It used to be, you know, to find a quote-unquote prostitute, um, you would have to, you know, go to a seedy area of town and you kind of know what areas, you know, those women would work or girls would work. And it's not like that anymore. It is on the Internet. It's very accessible. And, I mean, it's it's crazy, like, how many girls are seen from, from good, influential families you know, all all races getting lured into this. Yeah, it's uh, you make a good point about the the uh, the impact of the internet. Um, it it makes it, it in a lot of ways. It makes it uh, from the from the person who's who's uh, taking advantage of these people and who's paying for these for this uh, for these services or, or whatever you want to however you want to describe it. It's it's basically. Um, it, it it has a weird way of legitimizing it to the person who's doing it, who's who's um. Uh, I, I know that weird. It sounds weird to say, but from the person who's who's calling these these places to to get these services and paying for them, going to the internet and doing it opens it up to a, a whole broad range of people that normally would not be comfortable with going into these seating areas. So it spreads, it's it's it spreads it that way, and it and it there's the psychological impact of of being able to make this a simple call or a simple email on on uh, on the internet, and then 
a couple days later you're there. So uh, that's that does that. That's, Not even a couple days later. I mean, it could be in yeah. Like Twenty minutes. Yeah, that's nuts. Twenty minutes you're there. That's nuts. Yeah. Uh, another fact, according to the Article Four of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, no one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Slavery and the slave trade shall be prohibited in all their forms. In Article Six, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Would you say the difference between like ancient slavery and modern day slavery is that now people are disposable? Like uh, the reason they're going after young ladies and and boys is because they can extract whatever they need from them and then toss them and get a new one. And it's just this um, endless cycle of taking advantage of younger and younger uh, victims and moving on to the next place to hurt someone else. So uh, is, is that what is happening, that people are becoming disposable? Disposable, um, yes. But I, I want to bring a point as to why sex trafficking is so lucrative and so appealing to to gangs and is because it not only is a person disposable but they were usable. Meaning that if I am selling a weapon or I'm or if I'm selling a gun, you know, I sell that product, that product's gone. I have to go get more of that product. But with a person, you can sell them over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So disposable in the long run, yes. But honestly, reusable is where where the money is for these individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and you see the life expectancy of a teenager who gets involved in sex trafficking to only be seven years. Wow. Um, if you go back to ancient times when you're talking about, you know, that, we see all the way back even in biblical like times, like New Testament times where the Romans had sex slaves, and these women were servicing the military men, and that would be, and they were getting involved, you know, at age 11, and their life expectancy was three years back then. I mean, it's, yeah. still, it's still kind of the same idea. Mm -hmm. um, but life expectancy in, in today's society, you know, seven years once you start to be, you know, trafficked. So, I mean, somebody could get involved at age 12 and be dead by age 19. They haven't even lived their life yet. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I would say reusable more than disposable. And um, another fact about sex trafficking, according to the U.S. State Department, 600,000 to 800 people are trafficked across international borders every year, of which 80% are female and half are children. Uh, do you agree with some academics that say that um, there's not enough uh, reliable studies or analytic documents on trafficking due to it being underground? Is that one of the issues yeah. that is happening that is hard to pinpoint and find the resources because it's hard to know how many people are being trafficked at this time? Yeah, I mean, I do agree with that. And, and probably others in the anti-trafficking community would be upset with me by saying that. But I'm just, I, I just want to be honest. I mean, this is so underground, especially the boys is even more underground than the girls. Um, it is so underground. Um, and so many girls will not actually admit that they had been victimized. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of shame and guilt involved in this. Um, even though it wasn't their fault, 
um, there's still that, that feeling that they're going to be judged by society. And so they won't come forward and they won't self-identify. Um, we see that all the time. So it's, um, it's truly hard to, to get a handle on it. I think we try to get some statistics within the United States, within, you know, the domestic cases. We look at, like, the runaway rates, and we do see, you know, how often a child is, is declared missing. Um, it is true that a lot of these children, in my belief, that do end up missing are being brought into sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that and because I've heard the stories of the girls, you know, that, that talk about it. But, yeah, it's um, it's difficult to get solid um, statistics. And so I love when there are, um, there's a really great um, Arizona State University. They're really working hard to get more reliable statistics. Shared Hope International, trying to get those more reliable, you know, statistics. But, um I think there's a lot of sensationalizing, too. Um, you know, we say around Super Bowl time that there's, like, 100,000 um, teams are being brought in at that area. Um, that's that's probably not accurate. Mm. Um, do we need to say, do we need to give it that large of a number um, to, to try to make it sound like it's such a, it's, it's a horrendous crime. It's a horrendous mm-hmm. crime. And do we see an influctuation? Yeah, I've talked to girls that their pimps and traffickers made them go to, you know, those kind of sporting events. Yeah, that happened. 100,000 is, is, is a bit much. Yeah. Um, I, I, would, I would like to see research to back that up. But the fact of the matter is it, it is happening. It yeah. is happening. Yeah. And, um, you know, there needs to be more research done. But it's hard to do research on something that's that underground or when you don't have victims that want to self-identify. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that, that comes to mind with talking about this is is the underground aspect of it, um, which you had mentioned numerous times, and the, the fact that, that family members can be involved as well. Um, it, I have some thoughts about as to why it's underground. Um, this might be taken on a, kind of a conspiratorial, conspiratorial tone, but... Um, I was a I, I practiced criminal criminal law in Omaha, Nebraska for five years, and I I had a n- numerous situations where I was able to help out my clients based on information that they had, and on a few occasions people had information with respect to different uh, sex trafficking or uh, massage parlors or these types of things within Omaha, and I had a number of very weird things happen when I brought this up to to law enforcement officials, particularly the investigators. Uh, on on every single occasion where I, I had shared this information with them in, in the hopes of getting a, a, a better deal for my client, um, very quickly afterwards I heard in the news that, um, um, you know, that these, these uh, well not the news, but I heard through the grapevine that these places had all of a sudden closed up. And I was thinking, how is that, how is that possible for, like with me a few days prior speaking with these investigators, and then a, a week later, I hear through the grapevine that the thing's closed. And to me, it seemed like there was a lot of people involved in law enforcement and government that were using these services and who had a vested interest in not bringing it up. Now, I don't think that it's uh, that's probably a lot of people within law enforcement or government, but I think it's enough that they're, they're either getting paid uh, because of the... the, the uh, um, 
like like you had said, a lot of revenues that are that are coming in through this through these services. They're they're getting paid from from these people to to kind of keep it on the down low and and to cover it up. Or they're also or they're using that they're using these 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 uh, women and these victims for their own for their own purposes. And so I that might be a bit too conspiratorial, but just my my experiences led me to believe that, that that's something that might be going on. And in Omaha, um, I don't know if you know that much about Omaha, but um, in Omaha, Nebraska, there was a rather big um, big scandal there back in, I think it was the mid-90s, maybe the early 90s, where it came out that a number of high-level high officials within the county government, within the city government, were, were basically uh, running or taking part in a, a sex trafficking uh, thing. And so it seems like that uh, it, when, when it comes to actually enforcing these laws and, and, and tracking these people down, which I think is, is probably pretty possible with the, the Internet technology that we have and the, the tracking capabilities that we have, but there, there seems to be somewhat of an effort to keep it underground because there are a lot of people within government that are, that are benefiting from it. And I don't think it's just sex trafficking. I think it's also... Uh, drug prohibition and drug trafficking as well, where you have a system that um, where it, it's benefiting those in power, and so they have the incentive to to keep it going and to keep it uh, underground. Have you run into any any anything like that in um, in your years, or or um, anything to suggest that that uh, there might be active elements within law enforcement or 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 other areas of of the law to to keep this underground? Well, I mean, I don't want to speak too negatively about yeah. law enforcement yeah. just because of, you know, it's impossible to do what I do with, without them. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we do know, I mean, publicly know of cases where um, the, you know, there's a police officer in Memphis, Tennessee, um, police by day, pent by night, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, possibilities and other officers being involved in that. We know that law enforcement, on some level, um, are can be a facilitator mm-hmm. um, by either them being able to benefit, as you said, from the girls, um, or receive money on the side to allow it to happen, maybe in their neighborhood that they patrol. Yeah, we see. We know that there's crooked cops. We know that. Um, on the political end of things, we know that there's, you know, that there have been. Um, people in power who have solicited these young girls. We know that. And unfortunately, it's the people that have the most money that can buy the most um, protection and secrecy mm-hmm. for themselves, for a period of time, at least. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily forever. Um, you know, so, or the military. I'll tell you what. There is so much I have, I have spoke with a woman who used to, and this is public, you can look it up, I believe, on, on Good Morning America, or where she was speaking about how she was being forced by her um, commanders to be involved in sex trafficking for the other, um, for those in leadership mm-hmm. in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that happening? Yeah, it's happening. Um you know, how, on, on what scale it's happening, I'm not sure. 
I have no idea. I'm, I'm going to hope. Um, I, I try to be a, an optimist as much. I'm going to hope it's a small percentage. I think that most people that get into public service, as far as on law enforcement side, really do want to do good. Um, but I think that there's a percentage, as we know, that are are dirty cops mm-hmm. or politicians. I mean, we know of politicians that are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that. Yeah. Um, Another fact about um, sex trafficking is that under U.S. law, minors exploited in prostitution are considered victims of human trafficking. In many instances, brothels are disguised as acupuncture clinics, health spas, and massage parlors. Where does Nashville rank in modern-day slavery and sex trafficking? I know Houston was, a couple years back, was the number one place because of people coming from different countries, but what about Nashville? Well... I'm just going to be really honest with you. I, I don't know what Nashville is. I can tell you that almost every city that I speak with, like where some I meet somebody from a different city, they'll say, "Oh, we're like we're like number one, or like we're in the top ten. Almost every city I talk to, mm-hmm. um, you know, I know that Atlanta is supposed to be number one in the nation. I've heard that repeatedly, saying that Atlanta is like the hub right now. Um, when I was in Phoenix, I heard Phoenix was in the top, you know, two, three. I've heard about Houston. I've heard about New York. I've heard uh, just yesterday somebody told me Wichita, Kansas was in the top ten. Um, so, I, I honestly, I don't know. Um, I, there's a lot of cities that, that say that they're one of the one of the top. And uh, Oklahoma City, I heard just a couple other days ago. Uh, so, I, I'm not sure. Um I just know that it's in every city um, around the United States, mm-hmm. in every community, whether it's small or large. Um, and in your bigger cities, you're going to have even more of it because there's just more people um, involved in those, in those bigger cities. So I can tell you in Tennessee, on average, we have about 100 teens that are being trafficked every month. That's a study done by the TBI. And it was an extensive study done by the TBI speaking with other law enforcement agencies. And I can tell you by talking with some of the even smaller policing communities that they've said, um, you know, we're experiencing issues of trafficking. And what we're seeing are parents trafficking their own children. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, I, and I'm not saying Houston isn't one of the number one. Um, I'm working with a victim right now out of that area. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's happening everywhere. And in Houston, it makes sense Houston would be up there. Um, it would make sense that Nashville would be up here too, just because of our proximity to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But it's happening in every community. And I just want people to know that please don't think this is just a big city issue. It's happening in small communities too. Um, I was speaking in a very rural community to a group of probation, uh, kids who are on probation. And I'm talking about this issue of trafficking, and this girl says, oh, I know this guy that's doing this to some girls in our neighborhood. This is in a rural community. Mm-hmm. And, and, she, and she identified somebody. And I had to say to that sheriff, like, did you hear that? You need to talk to this person and get information on it. Mm-hmm. So it's happening everywhere. And unfortunately, as Americans, we would rather stick our head in the sand and just say that's not happening around here. And that's happening overseas. And most of our money that is being donated towards these causes are going overseas. 
because it's just easier to stomach that it would be going on in a third world country, mm-hmm. not here in, mm-hmm. in America. But it is. And America's, America is um, a part of huge pornography, um, you know, production, which is also contributing to sex trafficking. Um, and it's happening in strip clubs. People want to normalize it and, and, you know, bachelor parties and all that going on in strip clubs. Mm-hmm. Sex trafficking is happening in strip clubs. I have met a girl who started working in the strip clubs at 16. I have heard of a girl working in a strip club at age 13. It's happening in these clubs. So it's happening on so many levels, and we need to start being aware of it. And we need to adjust our moral compasses, too, and and start to say that, you know, if I'm purchasing sex from someone, um, you know, maybe I need to look at something in my own life and, uh, <laughs> yes. and make, you know, there's a study out of Arizona State University that says one in four men are purchasers of sex or have been purchasers of sex. Mm-hmm. One in four. Even if that statistic was one in ten, that is horrible. In our society. Yeah, that's that's insane. It it, um, it doesn't surprise me though, uh, because right. of because of our society and our culture, uh, we have this idea of, of moral relativism and uh, kind of a hedonistic approach to life because of our abundance that we have within this country, mm-hmm. and um, also the the way that the culture has portrayed women um, within our society and our culture, um, it's very disrespectful and it has been for a long time. And so for, for these men, and this sounds crazy, but for these men, it's not seen as a big deal. And it's, it's nuts to think that, but they, it's the common myth is that, is that these, these women love it or that they, that they, they chose this, this lifestyle or, or whatever else. Um, and that's enough for these guys to, to justify it to themselves. Um, and it's, it's just, it's nuts really. (laughs) How messed up that is, and and it's not. It's it's so it's so deep within our culture, and and it it's also it also has a lot to do with um, the 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 emotional and spiritual issues that, that these uh, the, the people that are that are purchasing sex for money, what you know what they've been through, what their life's been like, and and uh, so it's it's nuts, and and I think one of the reasons why it's ignored in our society, in our culture, is that, is that this, even when you hear this, or when people hear this, or it, because it's associated with, with sex, it takes on a, a different, um, it takes on a different form. And, and, and people don't want to pay attention to it because it's so, it's so wrong and so horrendous. And so they, they just, they want to put it out of their minds, they don't want to think about it. And and I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that um, there's just this basic disrespect for for women, and so uh, it's it's just kind of just pushed under the rug, and it's not a it's not a big deal, or or this idea that it's not as prevalent as as the people who work in it know that it is, um, and and also we have we have the laws against it, um, but it, it doesn't seem that there's any any real enforcement of it, and I think that also stems from this just this basic lack of respect for ourselves and for and for women and and uh, the fact that it's associated with sex does a whole entire it, it it's I mean it, it takes it out of 
it, it takes it into a different realm because it's involved with sex, and it mm-hmm. and it that really distorts the the response to it. I think right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and the other thing is is that people don't understand the violence that that comes um, with with this life. Um, so. Pornography, unfortunately, as, again, the internet has increased, you know, it's, it's accessibility to pornography. It's free, it's online, it's at a click of the button, it's on demand whenever you want it. And a lot of pornography is portraying very violent and rough and degrading sex acts with women. And so what we're seeing is that the men, and I, you know what, I, I will say I don't, I'm not someone that, that hates on men, but this is almost exclusively an issue with men as being mm-hmm. buyers, mm-hmm. almost exclusively. And what we're seeing is that these men will go to prostitutes to do the things that they're seeing online in pornography that their wives and their girlfriends would never in a million years do with them. And because of that, they're going to them, and it's this mentality of, well, if I'm purchasing it, I can have sex however I want it, I can have it how rough I, you know, want it, and I can do whatever I want to this person. And actually, they don't even see them as a person. Mm -hmm. And so, these women experience, I mean, when you talk about the aftermath of, of what happens, you know, to them, I mean, we've had girls, and this is gross, and it's graphic, but we've had girls that have to have surgery because they can't even hold their bowels in anymore because men have had such rough anal sex with them. Jeez. And that is, you know, that's the kind of stuff that is happening and and there's just no regard whatsoever um, to to women as as people. You know, they, they really view these prostitutes as just trash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sad. It's, 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 I think it's, uh, when you go deep down, it, it 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 relates to a lack of respect for for yourself and, and respect for lack of respect for others. Uh, I mean, that's what it really boils down to. And yeah, it's interesting that like what you had said with respect to um, uh, prostitution or not prostitution, but uh, pornography influencing the uh, influencing the, this uh, this practice. And uh, that's the first mm-hmm. I'd ever heard that that was. Uh, something that's occurring, but it but it makes sense uh, that that would be the case. Uh, that's disturbing, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Rachel, do you think that um, in movies uh, there's been also kind of an exploitation of women? Not only the movies that are meant to be exploitative, but lately there's been movies about human trafficking. I know the first Taken movie dealt with that in a very superficial way, but. There was two movies that came out in the last years about human trafficking, and they were meant to be to bring awareness. One was called Trade, and the other one's called Slevana's Journey. And I was actually pretty disturbed by those movies because in the hope of trying to bring awareness, they were very uh, raw and very uh, exploitative of the situation. Like, I know in Trade, they show little girls being kidnapped, one of them. Um, gets run over by a car. She's uh, being chased by the traffickers. Another one jump up, jumps off of a cliff and is staying away from them. In Slivana's journey, uh, they show uh, this young actress playing a 13-year-old who was uh, 
sold into slavery by her parents and they show pretty much everything other than the rape and to me I'm like aren't you supposed to be um, trying to give dignity to the women who have experienced this why showing it in a graphic way it's gonna help people stop this so I'm just afraid that at times people pretty much do what the culture uh, is doing and in the hope of trying to bring awareness they're, they're still exploiting the, the actresses and not really uh, addressing it with the sensitivity that such an issue should be dealt with. Um, I see what you're saying there, but I, I will tell you, um, I've seen Trade. I haven't seen the other one that you mentioned. Trade was the first movie I've ever seen about human trafficking. It was the first movie, um, and, I, and I saw that when I first started working in Dignity, and they used it, you know, as, as a way for me to, you know, to have my eyes opened about the issue. And I walked away from that movie angry. Um, I walked away just realizing how heinous of a crime this is, and I really felt there is no greater crime against um, a woman than that, and, uh, or a boy. Um, so honestly, that movie did its job for me. It, it actually made me even more passionate about this cause. I can tell you that, unfortunately, in our society, we've become so jaded to things. That if you have a movie that doesn't, and I'm not saying that it's right to do it, I'm just saying that people people want exposure to, like, like the grittiness. Even when we have survivors tell their story. Um, or we have, it's amazing to me, we'll have volunteers or people who want to volunteer and they say, I just want to sit and, and, and listen to the girls' stories. Well, wh why do you think you earned that right to hear that? Um, we we want it. We want to hear though. It's like our human nature is like we want to see the greatness. We want to hear the war stories because that's what moves people into action. Um, we've done a couple of awareness videos, um, very short ones, and and I'm always very concerned about okay. I don't want to cross the line here. I don't want to cross the line and, you know, because these are like young girls that are, you know, acting and I don't want to exploit them. And and usually they're telling me that I'm being too protective over them um, and that they understand that it's acting. Um, you know, I, I thought Trade was an excellent movie, um, but it was it was pretty raw at times. But you know what? That's, that's pretty real um, for what a lot of these girls go through. So, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I I didn't see the other movie, so it's it's hard for me to to, to mention on that one. But trade it, it it really got me passionate about the issue. It really did. Okay, one well, last question. Um, what would you say uh, to people who consider the involvement of churches and religious organizations a little concerning in the uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking intervention? Um, the, one of the fears is that proselytizing might be one of the reasons they're helping the survivors, which could get in the way of them receiving the resources they need, especially after being traumatized. Uh, I know that the trauma of being exploited can affect the brain and the behavior of the, the survivors, so uh, being exposed to any type of evangelizing or religious outreach at a time of coming out from the trauma uh, seems a little inappropriate. Do you think that 
um, the churches are sensitive to not do that and kind of give them their space and let them heal from their trauma, uh, even though they're coming from a religious perspective? Well, let me just tell you my background. Um, I actually uh, was a youth pastor for several years, um, and my background has been in, in ministry and so on. Um, my view is that um, I've, I've seen churches or I've seen ministry organizations to where they'll say, you know, our program is faith-based, and that means the girls will participate in Bible studies and will participate in this, that, and the other. We don't do that in our program. I mean, and I'm, 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 I come from the position that these girls, I, I don't want to push an agenda on them because they have been abused by the churches, by the way. The churches have been part of the issue with their view to them by calling these girls sinners and, and everything else. Um, the church has been, has been part of the problem. And, and let's be honest, some of them, that if, if one in four men are purchasers of sex, that means there's men within those congregations that are also purchasing girls. And these girls that have been through this, they see the wedding rings. They see the men wearing the crosses. They, they hear about past, you know, that these men are pastors. So they're reluctant, and they're really hesitant, and they're not trusting when it comes to that. Now, I will say that in the long run, um, we, we look at things from what are the, what are the resources that are going to help a girl to come out of sex trafficking or just overcome, you know, these, these traumatic situations. Uh, there's a book by Ruby Payne called A Framework to Understanding Poverty. She talks about seven resources that people need to come out of poverty. And I'm not talking about the financial side of things. I'm talking about just that, the mentality and that social economic class of, of poverty. And she talks about, you know, you need to have good role models. You need to have, you know, understanding of finances and being able to be financially secure. You need to have good health. And she goes through all these different seven things that people need. And one of them is spiritual. And when people have something that they can say, you know, that, that they feel like they have a purpose in life and that they, they feel, um, you know, on a spiritual level that they, they connect someplace, there is a greater amount of success a lot of times to that. That being said, it's not something that can be pushed. It's not something that right out the gate, I don't agree with um, a lot of ministries that go out um, on the streets and, and tell these, you know, girls, like, Jesus loves you and, you know, trying to push. I mean, they, they don't understand that. They don't understand that. We need to meet the needs first of people before we start pushing any kind of agenda. And... Honestly, when we have girls come in our program, and I've told my volunteers this, if you're here to evangelize, then you're in the wrong spot. This is not, this is, we are not an evangel, evangelism team. That's not what we're here to do. It's coming from a youth pastor, which, by the way, is kind of controversial. I'm sure some of the churches don't agree with me. But we're not here to do that. We're here to meet their needs. And then we can create opportunities to where if they want to, explore that, then we're more than happy to do that. But we're going to have girls come in our program that come from all different faith backgrounds. I've worked with a girl who is Muslim. I worked with a girl who is Jewish. You know, I worked with plenty of girls who are atheists. And we're going to respect that. We're going to respect them, you know, for, for who they are, and we're going to walk side by side with them 
we're going to help them through this. So that's kind of my stance on it. Um, I, I think that spirituality um, and, and evangelism has its place, um, but not, not at the beginning of, of these girls' um, recovery. I, I, I would say that it probably is inappropriate. I re- I respect that approach and I agree with it very very much. I um it's best to take care of the person first and give them the avenues towards spirituality if that's something they're interested in instead of forcing it upon them. Um the last thing that those those these women need is is somebody evangelizing to them. <laughs> um I understand the passion of people that do that, but I I respect your guys' approach to that and I think it's probably the most effective uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's something, I mean, we have, church, we have several church partners. You could all us that you see we have different church partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we tell them that, you know, we say that um, we're not here trying to, you know, convert these girls over to Christ. Like, we're here to, to love these girls where they are, mm-hmm. you know, and then if they want to explore that, we are more than happy to go that route with them. We don't force that on anybody. Um, I can tell you, youth pastor, when I had youth, when I had kids in my youth group, you know, I had kids that came from all different groups. I had the you know Catholic kids, I had the Baptist kids, I had the atheist kids, I had the Mormon kids. I had all these different groups, and the understanding was, you know, we're going to respect you if you respect us, and we created an environment where kids could come and talk about God without feeling judged without feeling, you know, any of that. And um, and that's what we want, is we just want to create opportunities where people can explore. Um, this, is, this time period, that first year is very critical in them discovering who they are. Because while they've been under a trafficker control, they have no idea who they are. Mm-hmm. Because if the trafficker tells them to jump, their response is how high. And if you know, he likes something, well, then she has to like that, too. She, she, she doesn't know who she is inside. And that's what we're trying to help them do, is help them, you know, discover that in the time that they're with us. So, yeah, it's, it, can be, uh, it can be controversial when it comes to, you know, different approaches that ministries have. And I'm sure I'll get some, you know, kickback from this, but that's <laughs> yeah. what I found. Before we go, Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about your residential program? Uh, a lot of people might not be aware of how women's shelters work, and is it a shelter? Is it a, you said, something more of like an open area? I know you mentioned wanting to have a ranch available for people to yeah. uh, experience uh, healing and receive counseling. So at this time, what does your organization program? offer to these survivors? Right. So at this time, um, our residential program, we have six beds for the 18 to 24-year-olds. It's a one-year residential. They can come in. They can have, um, uh, they will, it's very structured, I will say. First 30 days, they're not even allowed to work. We're just trying to get them stabilized. And also trying to get, a lot of times they don't have ID. They don't have any kind of documentation um, because traffickers will take that as a way of control. So we're trying to obtain those items. Um, we're trying to help them with job preparation, and they will get counseling, the addiction recovery if they need it, um, you know, basic life skills, job readiness training, 
you know, all of those uh, education, a lot of these girls won't, they don't have their GEDs. We try to make sure that we're getting them on that path. And we meet with them, and there's case management that they meet with their case manager weekly. And we're trying to help them set goals. And then in this course of the year, we help them to obtain those goals and give them the tools to be able to do so. So that's the, that is the residential program um, that we have currently. Now the ranch is um, we're looking for land, um, and if any of your listeners know of property that, um, you know, somebody is interested in donating, we're looking for about 30 to 50 acres. It would be for teens ages 11 to 18. It would be a long-term residential, meaning we could have a teen come in at age 11, and they would leave, you know, possibly at age 18. It depends, but they could be there for a long time. Schooling will be on site. Therapy services on site. But we're looking for that to be like a 40-bed facility. Wow. And that would be one of the larger ones in the nation. Um, so that's, that's the big goal um, that we're working towards. But right now, we're just working on filling our beds because um, we just opened and, you know, providing services for, for these girls here. Um, and we're looking to expand this program as well to make the 18- to 24-year-olds uh, program um, larger. But we're just excited that we got our first one open and, you know, moving forward from there that's great that's a that's a fantastic idea uh you know something like that out in nature would be good for anyone <laughs> uh so it's Absolutely. it's going to be really you know super super good for for people who have been through such a such a intense traumas so yeah that's a that's a great idea and i you know hopefully uh if somebody is, is listening that knows of some land then they can get in contact with us. We have a Facebook page. You have your website. Um, we have a Facebook page uh, for the show, The Mystic and the Skeptic. They can reach out to us or you. Uh, that would be uh, that would be awesome if uh, if you guys were able to get that going. Um, and there's a lot of land in the area, um, so yeah, that would be that would be great. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And thank thank you for for having me on and uh, being able to talk a lot. You know, obviously talking about uh, about these issues so that we could do more awareness and education. Thank you. Could you uh, could you give a, a kind of a just a quick summary of, of how people might be able to reach out to you? Um, yeah. Your your website address or any other resources that people might be able to to go to. Yeah, our website is unchainedmovement.org, and it's unchained with the ed on it. Unchainedmovement.org. Also, we have a Facebook page. Facebook.com slash Unchained Movement. Um, we do a lot of updates on that. Um, you can, from our, from our website, you can fill out a contact form if you'd like to have somebody come out and do a training or if you're just looking for ways that maybe you could get involved in what we're doing as an organization. Uh, we'd love to, you know, we, like I said, we have volunteers throughout the country, actually, not just within Tennessee, but throughout the country. So, um, there's a lot of opportunities to get involved. Make sure you look like us on Facebook, um, and that's a great way, like I said, to stay up to date. But um, we'd love to, to hear from you and, uh, you know, see how maybe we can all partner together. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate your time. Great. Thank you, Rachel. And I find it interesting that there's a new A&E show called Eight Minutes where uh, a pastor who used to be a cop, Kevin Brown, um, he goes uh, through an escort service and invites a woman to his hotel room. Well, he has eight minutes to convince her to leave the sex uh, work 
and uh, and become uh, rehabilitated or given an opportunity to pursue a different type of lifestyle. So there's going to be a new reality TV show that is coming out. I find it a little exploitative, um, and um, but I I knew somebody who did that in Houston with going through strip clubs and trying to build a relationship with um, the person and try to let them know there's other opportunities or things they can do for a living. Uh, yeah, I I really it was it was great to talk with Rachel. I I agree with her approach. I I think that um, with with something like this, the best approach is to uh, work uh, from the ground up with communities and to work directly with the victims, and uh, and uh, also reach out to to people who are who are in it uh, now as a pros- as a as a dancer or a prostitute, and and to reach out to them to, to help them out. I always think that that's the best way to to deal with these issues as opposed to making more laws or or uh, putting more boots on the ground, I guess you could say. Um, we have the laws there. It, it doesn't seem like there's much interest uh, with, with law enforcement to uh, to uh, enforce these, these laws. They're already stretched as it is with, with uh, enforcing all the other laws that we have on the books. Um, and I think that the sexual nature of it, because of the, the sexual repression within our society and because of, of the way that our culture treats women, and also sex in general, um, really distorts this issue and, and forces a lot of people to just kind of uh, shove it under the rug, as, as Rachel had, um, had mentioned. Um, in, 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 in that vein, I, the, the reason why that this, this, uh, I, th- I think this method of dealing with it works better is because you're working directly with people. And uh, it's, not, it's not going directly through some type of institution those institutions have their place, but working directly with people and providing them with avenues to get out of it and, and reaching out to them so that they can have uh, other opportunities in their life, I think is the best is the best way to deal with it. And it's refreshing to see people pursue it on that level as opposed to pursuing it through uh, through the law or through through government. So I I applaud Rachel's uh, you know work in this and other people that work in this area. It takes a lot of it takes a lot to devote your all your energies to helping people uh, who have gone through um, this type of sexual trauma and this type of abuse. And and as you have said many times, uh, it's it, it amounts to to slavery, and it amounts to violating basic fundamental human rights. And just because it's involved with sex doesn't mean that uh, uh, we should turn a blind eye to it. Uh, so I, I enjoyed this this conversation that we had today, and and uh, um, it was very very refreshing to speak with Rachel and, and to hear about her her organization. I know we just talked about how um, we have to do a grassroots effort as well, but just like anything else, uh, unless there's resources, unless there's personnel that is involved and people who are uh, trained and sensitive to the needs of the survivors, it's very difficult to um, stop these criminal rings that at times are more powerful than some of the governments. Thank you for listening. This is The Mystic and the Skeptic. We will be back next week with another show.